the Prime Minister spoke to Mike Hosking for the first time on News Talk ZB uh, since that announcement. It was Mike Hosking himself that uh, said that a, a month previous the station had been told by her office that she wouldn't come on once a week on every Tuesday, but she would appear when pressing issues demand it. So I guess the Trans-Tasman bubble uh, that had been announced the day before, uh, yesterday, was one such issue. Um, in the end... They talked for eight minutes or so. It was reported by the Herald to be a tense affair, but I think you know, pretty much like other ones they've done before. There was lots and lots of to and fro about um, MIQ, seasonal workers, opening the borders uh, and all that sort of thing. And then uh, Mike Hosking wrapped that up like this. Appreciate your time. Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister. How do you reckon that went? Some feedback shortly, 16 past. <laughs> yeah, Mike, Mike Hosking doing his, his signature desk thumping, but a real tone in his voice, a bit of an ominous tone, I thought, there. Well, he did ask for feedback, so what came in? Well, uh, he kind of did mostly his own feedback, uh, a little bit from the audience, but mostly um, he just sort of set off uh, wanting to tell listeners about, you know, the background to it and um, and the, the decision the, the PM had taken earlier. And, well, in fact, this is what he w- went on to tell his listeners. 18 minutes past seven. <laughs> Just, well, I got to let you in. We're in. We're involved in this 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 discussion at the moment. I don't want her back on the program. Is what it boils down to. And and your feedback seems to back that up. Uh, our prime minister lives in a fantasy world. Oh my God! How can you stand it? How patronising is this woman? Boy, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall looking at her face. Why do you waste your time? My God, Mike! How long she had to prepare for the interview? Six weeks and nothing's changed. And so it goes and goes. And Mike went on after that to say that his management at ZB still wants him to talk to the Prime Minister on these issues when she's willing to come on, which is a condition he didn't like. But he says he just doesn't want to do it because she never says anything uh, when she comes on. Well, first of all, that'll be patronising. But uh, politicians very rarely say anything to anyone, do they? I mean, not seasoned politicians anyway. Yeah, I mean, in, in fact, with that interview... I thought it was actually pretty enlightening. Mike Hosking asked the Prime Minister about a whole lot of things, the rationale for opening borders sooner and faster, which was a question, seeing as they made that decision the day before. Um, he also raised uh, issues about you know, the Ministry of Health's reporting of vaccine rollout data and so on, which has become an issue that's um, only grown as the day's uh, gone on um, today. Um, so, you know, it, it seems pretty strange to me. Even his own colleague, Barry Soper, the political editor at News Talk ZB, then burst forth with a comment piece published on ZB's website and uh, their sister paper, The Herald. Uh, he says he finds uh, Mike Hosking starts baffling. Um, he says he, he, he also takes Hosking to task for saying that he was raising with the PM issues that he claimed the press gallery had missed about isolation facilities and um, winding down the number of beds that were needed, for example, and uh, Barry Soper says Hosking wasn't at, at the press uh, post-cabinet news conference, so maybe he could be forgiven for missing the questions that were asked about MIQ facilities and stories that were filed as a result of them. But to accuse the media of being asleep at the wheel, says uh, Barry Soper, was a bit rich. So, yeah, even one of his colleagues having a go at him. And that is something Mike Hosking does do, uh, claiming that he's the only one asking the tough questions and even you know dismissing uh, the rest of the news media. So, um, yeah, Barry Soper felt the need to burst forth and have a bit of a swipe, although, you know, I guess in the end it is all, you know, clickable, engageable content, isn't it? And such was the Herald's headline on its website, uh, ZB host says, I don't want her back on the show. It all seems a bit soap opera-ish in the end, doesn't it? It does. And uh, someone's text here, Colin, and said, what you didn't mention is that the PM told him to 
take a deep breath. She was so condescending. Was that right? Yeah, she did at one point. I can't remember the exact context of that, uh, but uh, I think he was saying that the... Oh, I think it was actually in the part where he was saying your numbers are wrong. The numbers you were giving the country about vaccine rollouts are simply the wrong numbers. And I think she paused and said, yes, take a deep breath, Mike. It was a... Yeah, you could say it was condescending, but, you know, in in the tone of the interview, uh, he was being fairly aggressive. Uh, she didn't say that in a particularly, um, you know, mean or nasty manner. Uh, it was uh, delivered in a measured way. So, yeah, she was having a, a bat back at him, but I don't think it was out of context in the exchange they were having. But, you know, in the end, it seems like we're going to have more of these interviews. Mike, his bosses want him to do them. They want the PM on the show. He's saying, I don't want to do it, and I think it's the wrong decision. So I think we're going to end up with, a, well, ZB listeners anyway, we'll end up hearing a bunch of these interviews where both parties are kind of reluctant participants. And you're going to get a lot of kind of performative griping from uh, Mike Hosking afterwards, who takes up even more time in his show, you know, giving him his own reckons on the interview he's just done. Um, And, yeah, evidently he doesn't want to do them. Well, he might say, I don't want her back, but she's saying, I'll come back when I want to. Yeah, I know. It's a, this is what I mean about the soap opera nature of it. You know, she dumped them a month ago. He's still talking about it. You know, some people probably don't want to hear it out in radio land. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be a successful resolution to this one. Well, should we move on to a bit of a transport theme now? Much ado about a train. Yeah, well, obviously the big news on Tuesday was that Trans-Tasman bubble, but uh, it was also the first trip of Tehuya, the Hamilton to Papakura, and then if you change trains uh, to Auckland, the commuter train. And I found the coverage interesting because it's a consumer story, but also highly political. It's environmental, of course, transport choices. And, uh, well, just trains tend to make people very emotional, I think, or some people. Um, but that first trip was a real media event um, in on the day, but partly the thunder had been stolen a little in media terms because um, the day before it had also been in the news because they did a test run. The Prime Minister was on board, therefore the political reporters were there and also other ministers and local body uh, politicians and officials were all all on the train so it got covered uh, on that day as well. How did they cover that? Well, on on the the Tuesday, the, yesterday, the the debut journey, that's perfect for breakfast television because it left left just before six a.m. when the two TV channels, uh, TV One and TV Three, kick off. In fact, John Campbell was whipping up enthusiasm for it on the day before. He was uh, posted a video to Twitter. Uh, he was standing beside the stationary train, gesturing, striding up and down the platform, urging viewers to tune in. There's a bit of train noise in the background, but you know this is how how he was urging viewers to make sure they didn't miss him on the train uh, the next day on TVNZ Breakfast. Who will use it? Is this the rebirth of rail and the start of something exciting or, well, evidence that we've still got a long, long way to go? Breakfast, TVNZ1. We are live on the train from six. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) on, on the face of it, I would say, you know, Man promising to catch a train in the dark is not um, compelling live TV. But on the morning, um, they cut back and forth to him on the train. Uh, he kept up that level of enthusiasm uh, during the journey itself, spoke to a whole lot of people. In fact, uh, the spin-offs reviewer, Tara Ward, did a whole summary of those. Uh, for, for those who missed it, there's a link to that on the Media Watch page of um, of the RNZ website for Midweek Media Watch if you want to follow that to, well, well worth a read. He wouldn't have been the only reporter on that day getting a free ride, though, would he? Oh, no. No, he had plenty of company. Um, Yes, the AM show at three had uh, Karen Rutherford, um, a reporter who I think lives somewhere in the Waikato region, so she was quite excited about having 
that opportunity. They kept cutting back to her, although her line uh, wasn't holding up. So Duncan Garner back in the studio, having to make jokes about the Wi-Fi. Um, and she, but she talked about the train, the creature comforts, all this sort of stuff, and painted a bit of a picture of what it'd be like to ride it. And Checkpoint the same day actually did the return journey in the afternoon back to Hamilton as a live stream. And reporter Nick Truebridge tried to cue it up. You know, get the very moment that they pulled into the station and then also having to sort of translate what was going on for people who were just listening and not watching the video live stream. And so it didn't quite work. But all in all, all those um, all those reporters on the train did give people a pretty vivid picture of, you know, what the new service was like. But I did get the feeling at times that they made it all seem like this was a completely new ride and experience and sights and sounds and so on that things you could see out the window but of course the the northern explorer uh, goes through the same route passes through hamilton and then all the way to auckland without stopping uh three times a week so yeah the commuter thing is new obviously but it wasn't as if they had you know reinvented rail uh from hamilton to auckland and John Campbell, uh, he, he called it the renaissance of rail. So whether it will be the renaissance of rail or whether it will be just a money-losing ghost train, did they cover those issues? Yeah, not so much. That was partly the frustrating bit. Um because, you know, there are real holes in the plan um, that need to be explored, maybe not necessarily on day one, which is, a, you know, a celebration day, the debut of the new train. But uh, to change the tone a bit, uh, TVNZ1 News on Monday after that test run, uh, they did zero in on the drawback. So this is the host, Simon Dallow, um, bringing the mood down a bit with the intro for their report. Details of a much-lauded train service between Hamilton and Auckland have been released to a mixed response. The most expensive adult fare is $17 each way, but it's cheaper if you board at a station along the way or use a travel card instead of cash. A two-and-a-half-hour trip all up. For context, that's longer than getting from London to Manchester, which is more than twice as far, and only slightly quicker than going from Washington, D.C. to New York, which is three times as far. Bar humbug. <laughs> yeah, he made it sound like not such a compelling prospect. Um, but that report, interestingly, was one of few that I heard in the coverage of the, the two days when it was in the news that actually told you how much it cost as a punter to ride the train. Which You I should have been listening of... to Lately, Colin. We asked Russ Remington that weeks ago, 12 bucks. Oh, good on you. And he's the Waikato Regional Council guy, isn't he? That's right, yeah. Yeah, because I think it was him that actually... Uh, said that about the renaissance of rail I think that line came from him and in fact Katie Bradford of TVNZ uh, got that line from him that was in her report but she was there on that train with the PM on the dry run the day before and she got a you know a stand up with the PM and a sound bite about you know I think we'll build up patronage over time I think this will be successful but um you know, I think that was partly possibly a victim of, you know, doing the media set piece with the PM and the officials and the local politicians. That, I mean, the business case for uh, the, in fact, there are two, I think, um, that are easily available online, probably other stuff that specialist reporters might have. Um, that made it pretty clear why they had to rule out bullet train speeds. There were four options and they were incredibly expensive. So that's why you end up with something that's only going to travel about 65 k's an hour on average, um, I believe. And not much of that detail made it into the reporting that I saw um, in the last couple of days. And Russ Remington did actually give Katie Bradford what I thought was a better um, quote. It made it into her online story for the TVNZ website. 
but I don't think it was in her TV report. Um, she asked, look, is this train at risk of becoming a ghost train? And he said, no, it won't do that because we'll give the tickets away if we have to. But I don't think that'll happen. This won't fail. And I think that's a better, stronger quote than, you know, the kind of bland one that the, the prime minister gave that you know no one needed to hear in the end. Well, we're sticking with transport, and you'd like to talk about some excellent pieces of writing uh, on transport issues in the capital. Yeah, well, one in particular, this is, um, I'm being a bit parochial here as a, as a resident of the capital, but this is Dave Armstrong, who's a playwright and actor here in Wellington. He has a weekly column in the Dominion Post, which is generally pretty good. He's written quite a few about public transport, and, you know, you might be aware we had a few issues when our bus system fell apart in Wellington a couple of years back. One or two. Yeah, it never quite recovered. I think he turned, uh, Dave, coined the term bus catastrophe, uh, which I, I like. Hope I'm not um, giving them too much credit if that's wrong. Um, but, you know, then COVID came along, kind of covered up the failings in our bus system when the, when the patronage dropped. Uh, this week he wrote his column, are we heading for bus catastrophe 2.0? And it's really good because, you know, as, as a personal piece of writing should, it, it has his own personality in it, an anecdote of him trying to get to a meeting across the city on a bus, finding it impossible, uh, and then talking about how, you know, passengers are back in larger numbers now, and he sees signs that the buses just aren't coping and thinks we're heading for a, a similar um, problem, you know, the cancellation of buses at short notice and circumstances that created that first collapse possibly repeating especially um, driver shortages. Okay, moving on to the monitor. What's that covering? Yeah, this is a new initiative from Stuff. So Stuff still innovating, you know, one year on, a bit more now, under the new management of Sinead Boucher. Um, so it's one area, perhaps, um, if you were to compare the Herald, their big rivals in online, online news, um, and also they're, they're printed papers, although mostly they don't overlap in terms of local markets. Uh, but business coverage in the Herald's quite lively. They have a Friday supplement and, and columns by economists and so on that you don't tend to see too much in Stuff's papers. So Stuff has upped its game now by introducing uh, what they call a new publication and economic index called The Monitor. A publication and economic index. You've lost me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> I should have. Uh, I should have made that clearer. So the 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 publication is a quarterly thing, a bit like the one they do for the climate, called the Forever Project. So, and once every three months, a, a separate um, publication to kind of pull out and read magazine. But it's a constantly updated website too of dedicated content on business and economics and the rationale is look there's a lot of public interest now uh, and and people knowing a bit more about the economy things are changing so fast uh, there's a lot to be aware of in this post-covid environment um, so the idea is to help also the specialists the business community better understand the economy uh, they're navigating but part of the idea here is also not just to put you know, written stories and columns and so on online, but also have this thing they're calling a dashboard where there's, um, I'm afraid I'm, I would have to stare at them a bit and pay more attention to really understand them, but they've got uh, eight or nine categories of different economic activity and they're trying to show, you know, how the, the speed of the economy is, is slowing uh, or picking up. So it'll give us a, a kind of barometer, speedometer, if you like, for different areas of the economy. And I think it's a good thing to have done, um, you know, now, as we say, where more people are starting to wonder about aspects of the economy and things they need to understand. Well, as has been proven over the last year, economists don't always get it right. Yeah, and actually, 
that that was uh, an article in um, one of the well in the, the first edition. So this is actually Wednesday last week. Um, so seven days old that it came out. The first edition of the printed monitor, and uh, one of the columns there is from. Infometrics analyst Gareth Kiernan, and the headline is um, Economic Forecasting's Spectacular COVID Failure. And it's quite a frank piece, really, where he's saying, look, the stuff we do, COVID came along, disrupted so many things uh, that, look, honestly, quite a lot of what we say is just um, guesswork. And uh, he concluded in the end, the inaccuracy of economist predictions over the last 12 months mean you could be forgiven for taking our forecast for the next year with a sizable helping of salt. Um, which I guess is a little um, disconcerting if these guys are the experts. Or self-effacing, yeah. one or the other. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's true. Well, that's part of it, eh? Because, like they're saying, that part of the goal of this is they do want people to understand the complexity, the things going on that are making things unpredictable. And, you know, part of it is you know, we've got to understand the un- unpredictability. And if even the experts are saying, you know, we suffer this too, that, that all is context uh, that we need. So a bit like um, the Forever Project having two or three specialist journalists, it's their business editor, Susan Edmonds, who's um, putting, putting this all together. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll get some of their best content from their newspapers and the site that might get a bit buried in the stuff site along with the other content, putting it all in a specialist section like this that's um, not just business news but helping to understand and explain parts of the economy. Um, I think it's a good thing. And you spotted an April Fool gag that you quite liked. Yeah, I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit of an old crank when it comes to April Fool. I don't find many of them very funny, and you know, so many of them are hard to spot. And basically, the people that fall for them, I generally end up feeling sorry for them. But um, Wilderness Magazine had a really good one, which had a bit of a, a media point because recently. Um, the Department of Conservation uh, sort of overextended and uh, introduced this kind of rather controlling uh, media permission policy, which would oblige media who are operating on conservation lands to get a whole lot of permits before they do anything. I think they've rolled that policy back now. But on April the 1st, uh, Wilderness Magazine on its website said, um, the Department of Conservation has announced that from June the 1st, all hut book comments will need to be submitted to DOC for approval uh, before publication in any hut book. The clampdown comes in the wake of DOC's controversial policy demanding media apply for permits before any reporting or photography on conservation land. Uh, they quote a DOC spokesperson as saying, We are tired of people making silly remarks in hut books. We thought we'd stamp this out by printing rows and columns. Anyone now wishing to leave a comment will now have to email an application to comment form to DOC upon arrival at every hut. And uh, then they'll be required to drop the form off in person at the end of their tramp. If approved, the comments, including intended routes from a hut, uh, will be added to the hut book within 28 days of the tramp's conclusion. <laughs> there was more to it than that, and I guess that'll be in the written piece, what, it, what people actually draw or use the books for. Oh, yeah, that's what they say. We, we thought we'd clamp down on this by um, putting grids... And printing rows so people couldn't just draw dicks or use the books as score pads for card games. But the tramping public just can't be trusted. (laughs) 